All right. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Great Baptist Church. Um, we do have one announcement this morning. So at the end of February, so I'm going to give you all a month's notice. At the end of February, we're going to have a, an interest meeting for a greeting team, which is going to be great, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are at all interested in greeting or being a part of that um, and helping poor Rachel with what I have now uh, committed her to involuntarily. What do you call that when you commit someone to something involuntarily? Yeah, something like that. So if you want to help her, <laughs> voluntold. That's what we used to call it in Teach for America. You've been voluntold. Um, so if you want to help her in that endeavor, please consider taking part in that meeting at the end of February. That's the... Uh, beyond that, we have small groups on Tuesday and Wednesday this week at 6 o'clock. You had mentioned a couple of weeks ago the emergency the, the chainsaw training. Is that still a thing? Thank you for that. Yes, that is still a thing. That is next weekend. So next weekend on Saturday, there's going to be a disaster relief training at First Baptist New Orleans. So if you're at all interested in any aspect of disaster relief, so it's not just chainsaws, there's also feeding units, there's also shower units, there's chaplaincy. And the question I always get for that is, yes, you can be a chaplain if you're not a pastor. In fact, we prefer people to be chaplains if they're not pastors. Pastors tend to make very poor chaplains for a variety of reasons. We like to talk too much, or we're too used to it, I don't know. So yeah, come and take part. That's that's next Saturday at First Baptist New Orleans, and I believe it is starting at the fresh hour of 8 a.m., but I could be wrong about that. Uh, yeah, so thank you for that. Let me, let me pray for us as we get started this morning. Father God, you are so full of mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on us now, God. I pray that you would give us grace, Lord, the grace to worship you when we don't deserve to. God, the grace of unity, Lord, in the midst of times that are full of strife. God, just the grace to hear your truth, Lord, and I pray we would hear your truth today. God, that nothing we do or say could distract from your truth and your word. Lord, may it be spoken in every aspect of the liturgy, Lord, in every reading, in every song, in the sermon, God, in our prayers of response, Lord, in our cries out. God, may your truth be not just spoken, but also enacted. God, felt deeply. But we pray these things in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Sorry, I was monitoring my heart for the last half hour. And I realized, it's Epiphany. I didn't get the candle. But it's Epiphany. So good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the third Sunday of the season of Epiphany. Our readings have been focused on Jesus' life and ministry and what it looked like when the light of God came into the world. And so our gospel reading last Sunday was Jesus' first public miracle, um, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And our gospel reading this morning is from Jesus' first public speaking appearance. Um, in his hometown temple, where he reads from the book of Isaiah, um, the passages that should be familiar to all of us from our many weeks in Isaiah about the Lord's anointed one. And he proclaims that that, that has been fulfilled this day. And our Old Testament passage is um, from the book of Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 90. Am I right, Mr. Joshua? 19. 19? Um, so it's a psalm that we read often, um, but it's talking about praising God for the goodness of his ways, for the goodness of his laws, for the goodness of his decrees. 
and how they bring good things for us. And it seems like there's a might be a disconnect, at least for some of us, in the way that we think about the laws of God and the decrees of God and the ways that we think about Jesus, the Messiah, the promise of God, the, the healing of God, the liberation of God. But there's no separation between these things. The coming of Jesus was the fulfillment of God's law, of his decrees, of his ways. All of the things that Jesus came to save us from only exist because we have forsaken and abandoned God law, God's laws and his decrees and his ways. Because in his kingdom there is no sorrow, there is no suffering, there is no injustice, there is no pain, there is no death. All of these things that we long to be freed from, he longs for us to be freed from. He has always longed for us to be freed from. And he is guaranteeing that we can be free from them through sending his son. Mr. Joshua, would you please read for us this morning? Yes. Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. I'll be reading from the book of Psalms, chapter 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. The voice is not heard, yet their voices go out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and the circuits to the end of them. Nothing is hid from his seat, and all the Lord is perfect, dividing the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise and simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And what to be desired are days in gold, even much fine gold. So we are also in honey, and dripping of the only home. Moreover, by them is your servant one, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from the insolent, and I let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. But the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. <coughs> He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Please pray with us. God, God who is our freedom, our healing, and our good news, all of your ways are perfect and sure, right and clear, pure and true, and righteous altogether. But we have rejected your ways and forsaken your truth. We have valued our own wisdom more highly than yours, and we have sought after things which will not satisfy, instead of seeking your kingdom, which will never end. 
Forgive us, O Lord. Clear us from our hidden faults and set us free that we may worship you. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. Our Messiah has proclaimed good news for the poor, release for the captive, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, the favor of the Lord upon all of his children. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcome, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. Let us continually proclaim the goodness of his word. In you, in you O Lord, Lord our, our God, God, we find, find our joy. For through your law and your prophets, you formed a people in mercy and freedom, in justice and righteousness. Pour your spirit on us today, that we who are Christ's body may bear the good news of your ancient promises to all who seek you. Amen. recognizes him as the Messiah and he rejoices that he has lived to see the salvation of God coming and to me I mean that's hardly that is just the spirit of all of the season of epiphany is rejoicing that we have seen the coming of the Messiah and the light of God come into the world but also I just I always love these moments in scripture you get a glimpse of it in our gospel reading today when Jesus is speaking and it says every eye in the synagogue was fixed on him and you see all these times when he I think my favorite is when he um, raises back to life the son of the widow who had, had lost her only son and Jesus sees and has compassion on her and gives her her son back and all of the people are amazed and they say surely God has come to save his people this thing that they've been longing for and waiting for for generations they were finally able to see it and as I was singing this song this week I was thinking about how much I just love those stories and I love that idea and I was wondering why and I remembered um, when I was in my I think second year of college in my late teens I was um, I had some friends who lived in Texas and two of them went missing um, they had been murdered we didn't know where they were for weeks. It was, it was a long time before the police found them. Um, and at one point they, they found their car and all of the band stickers had been stripped off of it and there was blood in the back seat and there was blood in the trunk and we were all just, just terrified, just terrified, just every moment of every day terrified. And I was uh, in church one Sunday morning and one of my friends was teaching the Sunday school class and he did one of those like super cheesy youth group leader moves where he's like, imagine what you would do if Jesus walked in the room right now, like how would you feel? And I just thought in that moment, I was like, what? he was like, what, what would you say? And I said to myself, I was like, I would say, where are Jacob and Aaron? Where are they? And a little voice just kind of went, really? Is that really what you would say? And I realized in that moment that I wouldn't. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to ask. Like, if, if Jesus was there, if I was there with Jesus and I saw him, I wouldn't be worried about this anymore. I wouldn't be worried about anything anymore. Because even if the worst thing I could think of had happened, that worst thing would be they were with Jesus. And it was fine. And I've had in my life glimpses of a glimmer of that feeling of what it would be like, that peace that we will know, that joy that we will know, 
when the kingdom of God has come in full and when we experience it in full and when there is no more sorrow and no more sadness, I've caught glimpses of that moment and that they are what they sustain me. But the hope of that coming in full, of me being able to say, I have seen, I see, I see right now, I can see every day that this has come. It is literally what I live for. And that is why I love this song so much. I am so grateful for the glimpses that I have seen of our true hope and our true joy. And I, I long to see completely, fully, face to face, to know as I am known.
Father, truly there is no other that you should worship and bow down before. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you for your provision in this day. Father, you, uh, everything that we have comes from you. And you now allow us to gather together and give back uh, to you in ways that uh, build each other up and serve uh, those around us. So, Father, use, employ us in every way that brings you glory and serves your kingdom purposes, Father. Use this body of believers here in every way that benefits um, where we live, where you place us. Thank you for your provision today. And most of all, thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And I pray that we would hear your call to your great peace, Lord. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
of your presence with us, Lord. It is our light, our wisdom, our everything. Help us to turn our hearts, our eyes, our ears towards you, to seek your presence, to see you in your beauty, to walk in the light of your ways. Help us to listen for your voice in your word today, as if we are listening to the voice of our only hope, our only light, our only love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. This is super awkward because the first line of my sermon was going to be to ask you what you would say to Jesus if you walked into the room. <laughs> so I guess instead of that, I'm just going to ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And Josh was saying before service that he always has trouble getting to the hymn in time if we use the hymnal. So I'll go ahead and tell you, Josh, we're going to sing 323. <laughs> so this should be plenty of time to get there before we start. Now, unfortunately, Meg has to go home to deal with a, a sick child, um, and so she's not going to be here after the service to lead us so well as she always does. We are in a series right now on the topic of marriage and singleness, two great gifts of God, one or the other given to each of us. And all week and in our small groups, we've been talking about how we use these gifts we've been given. Like most gifts of God, marriage and singleness are given to us, but they're not meant just for us. They're meant for our churches and for our communities. They're meant to be given out from us. Singleness is a gift of personal freedom. The ability to go whenever and wherever needed without having to think about your duty to your family. Marriage is a gift of boundness. Binding together two people in a way that is not meant to split apart again. This bind is so strong, it's strong enough to hold together churches and communities, hold families together, give the stability we need to grow. We've spoken, too, of the ways in which our culture misunderstands and misuses both singleness and marriage. I've been allowing in my sermons our culture to begin the conversation, starting each week with the cultural conception of marriage and then inviting people into the truth of God revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord brought to us in the words of Scripture. Today we're going to begin with our cultural conception of um, marriage as fulfillment of longing. Marriage as fulfillment of longing. And then we're going to allow the words of God to speak to the truth in Scripture. We see this idea, we, we see this idea of marriage as the fulfillment of longing in all of the stories we tell each other that end in happily ever after. We see it in the scoff of confirmed bachelors, you know, <laughs> marriage. Everyone who believes that the whole idea of marriage is rubbish, foolish, wives' tales, optimistic. Every time we tell ourselves the perfect man or woman is out there, and you'll find her. Every time we tell our spouse that they are our whole world, our everything, and you complete me, we are repeating this idea that marriage is the fulfillment of longing. It's meant to fulfill us, to make us happy, to satisfy us. To be clear, this morning I'm teaching against that idea, against the cultural conception that marriage is going to satisfy us, going to cure our loneliness, our desire for companionship. I'm saying that marriage will not fulfill your longings. Which I know sounds like a real buzzkill. That probably will not make it onto the Hallmark cards for Valentine's Day, you know? I just imagine sitting across from my wife, some candlelit dinner, and I just stare into her eyes and say, you do not satisfy me. <laughs> but it's true. I, I wouldn't do that. That would be sad. It, that would be worse than sad, actually. When a person realizes they aren't satisfied with their spouse, they aren't having their longings fulfilled, their needs met every time, that is tragic. But as Buechner reminds us, the gospel is always tragedy before it's good news. 
the reason we aren't able to be satisfied fully and completely in our relationships is because we are each sinful. I know we like to think the perfect woman, the perfect man is out there, but they're not. We have to know we're sinners before we can know anything of forgiveness. So I have to tell you a tragic, true thing this morning before I can tell you good news. The tragic part of this sermon today is that your spouse, either the real one that you actually have or the imaginary one that's in your head, that maybe one day you'll find one that you're wishing for or that you've given up on finding, that spouse will never satisfy you. And you will never be able to fulfill their deepest longings either. With that in mind, I want us to read what, to be honest, is a fairly upsetting passage. I'm not going easy on you today, but I think you can handle it. Uh, and I promise this sermon ends with good news, the best news. And for now, read with, you, with me. This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all, all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, I pray we would know your truth in your word today. God, because we know your truth will set us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll confess something to you. I have never liked this passage. I have never liked this parable. I, I did not intend to preach on it this morning. Uh, but God does what he wills. I, I don't like how cruel the king is, burning cities to the ground and throwing that man out of the feast just for wearing the wrong clothes. You know, it seems angry and cruel, and I, I don't like thinking of God as angry or as cruel. And I'm saying this as a confession, of course, because this is the word of God, and the right response is to give thanks to God for his word. I just don't always have the right response when I read scripture. But I'm glad the Spirit drew me to it. Usually the passages I don't like at first are the most beautiful to me and the most effective on me when I sit with them. And so it was this week with this passage. This is a parable about salvation and our resurrected life. Those left in the outer dark being those who don't accept the invitation to spend eternity with Christ Jesus. But it's also a parable about marriage, the wedding of a king. The first thing you have to realize is how great a gift and an honor it would be to be invited to the feast of a king. Think about the great banquets and events of our times. You know, the kind with red carpets and the guests only ever need first names because you're supposed to know them already. Uh, and we watch from our homes miles away through cameras and TV screens. They're all so glamorous in the gowns and the suits. People give them for free, just so the designer can say, I designed for her. I have never been invited to a party like that, much less a royal wedding. No one in my family, in fact, has been, but my brother, Will, got the closest. I think I have a picture of it, Ben. Uh, when my brother was living in England, Prince William married Kate Middleton, and as a part of the celebration, the royal family declared 
the day, a national holiday. They closed all the businesses and schools, and then, just for fun, they paid the fares that day for everyone named either William or Kate. So my brother, Will, just so happens to be married to a Kate, so they took a free trip to London that day. But if they had tried actually going to the wedding, the servants of the king would not have allowed it. Usually that's what the servants of a great king are doing at a royal wedding. They're keeping out anyone who tries to come in without being invited. So already in the first verse, the first sentence of the parable, we see something strange. Why are the guests not already there? I imagine a huge crowd gathered. I have a picture of that too. A huge crowd gathered. And they roll out the red carpet and the time comes and no one shows. The king's own people, he sends his servants to tell them they've made some sort of mistake about the day or the time. And then my Bible says they would not come. The word there is, is willing. It means they just, they just didn't care. They weren't willing to be there. They'd rather go to work than celebrate the holiday that had been declared. The king sends other servants, and unthinkably, they kill the servants of the king. Imagine Brad Pitt brutally murdering the mailman who invites him to the Oscars. You know, it's, it's absurd. Jesus is trying to get us to ask the question, who are these people? Who would do such a thing? How can you explain that kind of behavior? Obviously, these people would have been friends of the king or, or his own family. It's his own people. Otherwise, why would they have been invited? And even though they should have been friends with the king, they turned enemy to him. This is rebellion. And strangely, it's not an angry rebellion against anything unjust or oppression. This is casual rebellion. It's just not caring about the king or about doing honor to his son. Caring at all about this celebration. Casual cruelty and then even violence against his servants. Then the king tells his servants, go let the crowd into the feast. All the ones who came, though they weren't invited. Will you put that picture back up, Ben? All these people. Go let them in to the wedding. Go let them in to the feast. And one thing that I was missing in my understanding of this parable is that if a king invites you to his son's wedding, like I said before, the clothes are free. Uh, the king would have been giving robes to his guests, fine clothes, very valuable things. This one man not wearing clothes, it's not because he's a poor man and he couldn't afford the clothes. This is someone who had been given a thing of incredible value, and he despised it. He left it on the ground. Who are these people who despise or reject the generosity of our God? The king, of course, is God the Father, and the Son is Christ. And we can talk more in small group this week about who the other characters are in the original readers, but really what today I want to draw your attention to is that when we ask who the people are in this parable, we are. We are these people. We are all of them. We are the ones who are invited and refuse. We are the unworthy people outside the gates who are brought in. We are the servants insisting everyone come to the feast, inviting everyone. We are the man who sits and eats the king's food even though we despise him and cast off his gifts that he gave at great cost. We are even the bride. And there's a lot more that we could say from this, but I only have time for a few things today. I want to start with this. We are the people who refuse or cast off the generosity of our God. We've all been these people, these enemies of God who refuse his invitation at some point in our lives. And even now, those of us who are redeemed and restored, we bear the traces of that old man, that old person. We still delude ourselves into thinking that other things and people will fulfill our longings. That other things, but the truth is, other things and people are at best a reflection of God's goodness, and he is the source. In the parable, these people who are invited to the feast, they refuse, and for what? To go to work? To earn a wage? 
They're satisfying themselves with what they can do and what they can earn when the king's invitation is to a greater wealth and feast than they possibly could have earned for themselves. Why do they not see the poverty of what they have in comparison with what is being offered by the king? And by that, of course, I mean to ask, why do we still cling to lesser things when perfection is given to us freely? Every one of us has a deep desire for intimacy, which is to be fully known and fully loved at the same time. Every book, every movie, every person knows this. We look at marriage and we see the honesty of it, how well your spouse knows you. And we think, ah, there's a part of it. There's half of it, what I've been longing for. And so we seek out the other half. We, we go out and we try to find being fully loved. And when we think we find love, we add marriage to it, thinking that we'll find now at last what we've been longing for, to be known fully and loved fully. But then we all know what happens. We've all seen it in our parents' relationships, in our friends, in our own. That tragedy that I spoke of earlier is what happens. Because of sin, you won't be able to know or love your spouse in the way that you want to, not fully, not the way that she needs to be known and loved. And she won't be able to know and love you fully, not the way that you really need to be able to be known and loved, not the way that you've always longed to be known and loved. At its worst, this failure to know and love looks like the things we all dread, the reasons we're all scared of marrying the wrong person. Either it's the complete collapse of knowing each other, as in your sex life dying completely, your spouse is hiding things, bank accounts, affairs, entire lives, or just emotionally, you lose touch, you don't know each other. You're two strangers who happen to live in the same place. Or it's the complete collapse of loving each other. You stop doing anything to submit to or help the other, constant fighting, tearing each other down, pointing out every flaw, rules laid down, ultimatums given, actually wanting ill for the other person, neither one willing to apologize or give grace. When we have these relational breakdowns, we see the tragedy clearly, but what I'm telling you is that even in the best marriages, in their best moments, the tragedy is still there, and it's still tragic. No matter how amazing a person is, Expecting another person to fulfill your desire to be fully known and fully loved is like a starving man eating a painting of a feast and expecting it to satisfy his hunger. His hunger won't be satisfied and he will have ruined a beautiful image, both, because the truth is, marriage is not meant to fulfill your longing. It's meant to image, it's meant to be a picture of the relationship in which our longing to be fully known and fully loved is actually able to be satisfied. Marriage is not meant to fulfill your longing. It's meant to image the relationship in which our longing to be fully known and fully loved is actually able to be satisfied. I'm talking about Christ's relationship to his church. Ever more fully knowing and loving God alongside others and seeking to do the same is able to fulfill a deep longing in us which uh, to be known and loved, to know and love. And apart from that, you cannot fulfill your desires. You'll just eat and eat more images and more paintings, all trying to point you to the wedding feast that we see in our passage. That's the real thing of which the other things speak. That's where you'll find actual fulfillment of your desires and not just copies. Water that won't leave you thirsty again. For single people, this means marriage is not necessary to live a fulfilling life. You don't need to get married to complete your life in some way or to find fulfillment for this longing that you have to love and be loved because Christ loves you and knows you fully and without end. In Christ, you can find the satisfaction for these desires. Marriage is just an image of the deep reality of Christ's love for his church. You don't need to be able to paint a picture of a feast to eat and take part and be satisfied. You don't need to take part in the image because you are able 
to take part in the reality. For married people, this means expecting your spouse to fulfill your every longing, to make you happy in life, is an unreasonable expectation. And that is such a heavy, unreasonable expectation, it is crushing to anyone on whom that weight is placed. He can't make you satisfied in your life. She can't fulfill your every desire. You're both going to fail, make mistakes, get old, falter. This is our human condition since the fall. But God is good and satisfying. He never fails you. He never leaves you. He does not change, and he always provides. Find your joy in him. Bring your longing to him, and know that he is good. Going back to our parable, I said that we are the people who refuse or cast off the generosity of our God. That's true of all of us at some point in our lives. We all start in that outer darkness. But see in the parable that God also invites each and every one of us into his feast and his kingdom. Everyone in the parable has been offered an invitation. Can, uh, that, can you put up that picture of the crowd again? Can you imagine if Harry and Kate let open, actually in real life, let open the gates of Westminster Abbey for all of these people to come in? <laughs> in my imagination, I, I'm imagining people with, with billboard signs and felt top hats with the British flag on them, you know, and um, sandals with socks and babies crying over the bowels and you can't hear them and cockney accents making slurred toasts at the reception, you know. God invites the people, all of them, into his feast. Even us. Even you. Even me. We are the people who are not really worthy to be there. To quote Keller, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. It's important to realize you're not really worthy to be at the king's feast. That you need his robe, his righteousness to cover you. That's the first step in coming to his table, is admitting that you are not worthy to be there. So we are the people who are gathered outside. We are the servants. We are sent to tell people about the wedding to bear that message in evangelism that they are invited into the kingdom of God, into unimaginable grace and blessing. And when they refuse, to go a second time, even if it kills us, to bring them into our fellowship, not for anything that we might have or we might gain, but for their own sake and for the honor of the Son and the King. We're the servants, but remember too, in contrast with that, we are also the bride at this wedding. John writes in Revelation 19, the passage I was going to preach on today, that the church is the bride of Christ in his kingdom. In that culture, in that year of betrothal, one of the main things the bride would have been doing in getting ready for the wedding day would be to sew her own wedding dress. Not dressing up because the groom's not going to marry her if she doesn't bring a fancy dress to the wedding, but just to please him. To stand before him and not be ashamed at having neglected this simple act of love. This passage is not alone in Scripture imagining the kingdom come as a wedding feast. Throughout the Bible, the end of this age is related to a wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. There is a reason why we all love stories that end with a wedding and happily ever after. It's because that's kind of how it does end, happily ever after. Or rather, that's how we start anew. But with the real wedding, not our images of it. But even the picture of it is beautiful. And we can look in awe in healthy marriages at what Christ has done. The last thing I'll point out. If this is the wedding of the King of Kings, the creator of heaven and earth, there's no one who is equal to him. Whomever he marries, even if it is the church Universal, revealed in her splendor, he is marrying beneath his station, as the British royals would say. And there's only one real reason in that day and age that a person would have married beneath their station. It's if you find great joy and delight in the person to whom you're marrying. And so Christ does in his church, his people. 
I'm inviting you this morning, myself a servant of this King, to the wedding, which is the deeper truth behind any of ours, the reality which we image. I, I hope you will not refuse and try to go about your life here. There is so much darkness outside of the kingdom and so much fulfillment in him, and I want good for you. You'll have to admit that you aren't really worthy to be there and put on his righteousness. But when you are there, and when you're there because of his great joy and delight in you, the telling of that tragedy has another chapter, and it turns it to comedy and joy. Your life needs another chapter to turn into happily ever after, and you can't write it, but Christ is able. Won't you come, pray with me, or with the person next to you, confess and apologize to the spouse beside you, pray for Christ to fulfill your longing. Pray with me now. Father God, you are our King. Whether or not we choose to recognize that, God, whether or not we choose to honor you, Lord, you are King. God, I pray that each and every one of us would find ways of honoring you. God, would come to your feast, Lord, that we would be your servants, that we would be your bride, or that we wouldn't set aside your righteousness offered to us freely. God, that we would realize the value and worth of what it is that you bring to us. And I pray this for each and every person in this room. Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Sing with me. I don't. Our pianist is out. Our worship leader had to leave. So y'all, please sing with me. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Number three twenty-three in your hymnal. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. I will arise and go to Jesus, he will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty glorified. True belief and true repentance every grace that brings you nigh i will rise and go to jesus he will embrace me in his arms in the arms of my dear savior oh there are ten thousand charms Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. I will arise and go 
to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. And before we go, one more time, please join me in the singing of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord.